0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As we continue our study through 1 Corinthians, this morning we come to the end of chapter 7. I'll be reading verse 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 40. This is God's holy word. Please give it your full attention. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, If his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Many years ago, there was a movie that came out called City Slickers. It was a movie that starred Billy Crystal as a suburban, middle-class husband and dad, His name was Mitch, and Mitch was going through a midlife crisis along with a couple of his buddies. And So to try to deal with that, they decided to go out west and go with a group on a two-week cattle drive in order to try to find themselves as men in midlife. On that cattle drive, there was a trail boss who was a rugged and scary old cowboy. His name was Curly. One day, Mitch and Curly are riding their horses cross the plains, and they get into an odd conversation about the meaning of life. Curly looks over at Mitch, and he says, do you know what the secret of life is? This. Mitch looks at him and says, your finger? And Curly says, no, one thing. One thing. You stick to that, and the rest don't mean anything. And Mitch says, "But, but what is the one thing? And Curly smiles at him and says, that you will have to find out for yourself. Curly, the first post-modern, post-modern cowboy, I guess. <laughs> find out your own one thing. Whatever's the one thing for you. Well, at the end of the movie, the point of the movie, if you watch it all the way through to the end, the point of the movie is that Mitch believes, he comes to the conclusion that his wife and his kids, his family, is the one thing that he should live for the one thing that gives meaning and purpose to his life. I would say after studying, spending some time this week, studying 1 Corinthians 7, Paul would beg to differ. Marriage and family are great, but they are not the one thing in life. Now, God's word has a very high view of marriage, don't get me wrong, the highest view, as God designed it. And in the church... We fight for the right definition, the biblical definition of marriage. We exalt marriage as one of God's very best gifts to man. To the point where we actually treat some of our beloved singles in our church families as second-class citizens, I fear. But what's fascinating to me is that here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul seems to do the exact opposite. He seems to exalt singleness, the calling to be single and serve the Lord as a single person, as being a higher calling, a better calling than being married, and almost seems to treat married people as second-class citizens in the kingdom. Well, let me assure you that that's only a superficial reading of what Paul is saying here. It's not really what he's saying. I think in order to understand 1 Corinthians 7, and particularly this part of the chapter, you need to look at it like a case study. You know what a case study is, especially if you come from a psychological training background. You study the principles of your field, of your discipline, whatever it is, and then in a case study, you seek to apply the principles to a particular situation and set of circumstances and in somebody's life. That's really what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 7. He's taking the principles of Scripture and the principles of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's applying them in what we would call a case study, a a particular situation as it revolved around the church in Corinth, what the Christians were facing in their circumstances in that first century, century dark city of Corinth. He wouldn't necessarily write this chapter to us the same way that he wrote it to the Corinthians. He would apply the same principles of God's word but he would probably apply it somewhat differently to us in our circumstances if he were to write this chapter to the church at Oakwood. So what we're going to do this morning is actually try to understand the circumstances that he's writing to, but then work backwards to what are the principles. What are the principles that Paul is applying to this question of singleness and marriage in this church in Corinth and how might then, once we've done that, understand the biblical principles, then apply it to our lives and our situation? What you're going to see is that Paul is not trying to set up marriage over singleness or singleness over marriage. That's not the principle that he's trying to establish. The principle is he's trying, what he's trying to do is get to what is the one thing. What is the one thing in life? As good as marriage may be, or as good as singleness may be, what is the one thing that we're going to compare those two? And so he's going to address the question of marriage here. And we've already seen that 1 Corinthians 7 is a lot like reading, a, a, like you reading a transcript. If somebody were to take a transcript of a question and answer, a QA session between a teacher and the students, what if you could only hear the answers and you couldn't hear the questions? You can imagine how difficult it would be to interpret the answers if you didn't know what the answers were responding to. We said a couple weeks ago, it's kind of like listening to one half of a, of a phone conversation. But imagine that you're listening to a phone conversation, but you can only hear the one side of the conversation, and you're only hearing the answers to somebody's long list of questions. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians. We don't know for sure what the questions were. We try to determine from Paul's answers, what he was being asked because this letter 1 Corinthians has been largely a series of answers to questions raised to him and we don't have the letter from the church in Corinth to Paul in chapter 7 all the questions have revolved around the calling to be married is marriage good is marriage bad is singleness good is singleness bad how do we are how do we look at this most one of the most important gifts God has given us and so We see that when you get to verse 25, he's actually shifting and he's answering a slightly different question than he's been answering in the first half of the chapter. He introduces a new topic. He says, now concerning the betrothed, just pause for a second and, and wrestle with that word betrothed a little bit. I, there's a little bit of interpretation going on there in the translators. The ESV usually tries to avoid that, but I think here they did a little bit of interpretation, because literally in the original language, the word that he that's translated here, betrothed, is the word virgins. He's talking about virgins, people who have not entered into marriage, and he's talking about in probably more broader terms than to just talk about the betrothed, although later in the chapter, you'll notice, he does address people who are in a commitment to marriage. Now, again, betrothal in the first century, especially in Jewish culture, was a lot like what we call engagement, but the vows to be betrothed to another person were actually stronger than our engagement vows. We break engagements relatively easily compared to betrothal vows, but it's the same idea you have not yet married, but you're committed to another person. So Paul may have been intending to address those people throughout the chapter, but I think in certain places, he's just dealing with people who are not yet married. When you think of virgins, typically in Scripture, you're thinking of people who are of marriageable age, but they have not entered into a commitment of marriage or betrothal. And so that it's that general group of people that Paul's addressing here, people who are not yet married. And the question is, Should they marry or should they not? And as we've been looking at these questions in chapter 7, we've noticed that this is all about vocation. That's one of the underlying principles, that God calls us to Christ. He calls us to faith. He effectually calls us to faith in Christ. But then once we are saved in Christ, he calls us to particular responsibilities, particular jobs, particular opportunities, circumstances in life. And so your career is part of your vocation, but the level of suffering in your life is part of your vocation. The person you're married to or not married to, you know, your, your friends in your life, those are people who are part of your vocation. This is part of your circumstances that the Lord orders for your life, and you're called to serve him within those circumstances. And so he's addressing the question of marriage, and before he gives his answer, he says this. He says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give you my judgment. That's an odd thing for an apostle to say because we understand that an apostle was sent by Christ to speak for Christ and that everything the apostle said in the role of an apostle when he gives us the official teaching to the church is of the same authority of Christ. We don't believe that the red letters in a red letter edition of the Bible have any more authority than the black letters. It's all the word of God. And so what is Paul saying here when he says, I don't have a command from the Lord so I'm going to give you my judgment, my opinion on the issue of whether you should get married or not. Well, it's the same thing, the distinction, we saw the exact same distinction back in verses 10 and 12. In verse 10 he says, I give this charge, this command, I give you this charge, not I, but the Lord. And then he turns around in verse 12 and says, Now I say, I, not the Lord. And it almost again sounds like he's making a distinction between what the Lord says and what he says, as though what he says is of a different level or lower level of authority. That's not what he's saying. As we said back then, he's saying the same thing here. The Lord spoke directly to this. I have a word from the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that case, it was about divorce. He has spoken. He says, you shall not get divorced. And then he goes on to say, well, how does this apply? Well, let me give you my judgment, my understanding of how this principle applies. Of course, once Paul gives that assessment, then it becomes the word of God and has equal authority to what the Lord directly said. And so he's saying, I have a direct statement from the Lord on this subject, and now I'm going to expand upon that, and I'm going to apply it. Well, that's what's going on here at the end of chapter 7, too. He's saying, I don't have a direct command from the Lord on this issue of whether you, Corinthians, should get married or not. I don't have a direct statement in the law or in the teachings of Christ to give you. So I am going to apply what the Word of God says. I'm going to apply it to your situation And again, what he says has full authority as the word of God. So as he does that, I just want you to notice there are basically three factors that he addresses because this is so similar. Now we're talking about marriage here, but there are many areas of life that are going to be similar to this. What Paul does in applying the principles of God's word is he asks the Corinthians to assess three different factors that will help them come to a decision about their vocation about their calling from God, about how God wants them to serve in their unique circumstances. And we're able to to basically distill these three questions in this way. The first question, first factor there to look at, is what is the level of your distress? In other words, what are the external pressures on your life? What are the things outside of your control, the external pressures that are pressing in on you to help you decide what the Lord wants you to do. He says in verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Now he's telling these Corinthians, it's good for you to stay firm and stay still in your circumstances because of the present distress. If you're betrothed or married, stay betrothed or married. If you're single, stay single. If you're not married, don't seek marriage. And that fits in with what we've already seen earlier in chapter 7, where he basically over and over again keeps saying to these Corinthian Christians, remain as you are. Stay where you are. Don't seek to change your circumstances in order to get to where God wants you to be. Take very seriously the possibility God is asking you just to stand firm in faith. And the driving factor, the driving issue here is the present distress. This present distress is what causes Paul to give this particular advice to these Christians. The Greek word there for distress, we tend to think of distress as as kind of like a synonym for stress. It's kind of a low-level annoyance or aggravation in life. But the word in Greek actually is a very strong word, and it's a word that means crisis or severe hardship. So we're talking about some big issue that these Corinthians were facing, some big hardship some major type of suffering that the church was going through and scholars as they've looked at this over the centuries they've come up with two main opinions on what the distress or that crisis or that hardship could be the first possibility of course you think of any church in the first century the first real possibility is persecution and we do know that persecutions were going on in that part of Greece that part of the Roman Empire and that that's a very real possibility and a likelihood that persecution was part of the hardship. But it's interesting that based on a few things that Paul says in First and Second Corinthians, and what we know from secular historical sources, it's a very real possibility that that area of the world was going through a severe famine at the time. For instance, Paul talks about the poor in the church in Corinth, and he specifically mentions in chapter 11 of them coming to the worship services hungry. And it leads commentators to think that famine was a very real possibility. That's what was going on. That's part of the suffering and the hardship. What's probably true is both were true, that they were both being persecuted and they're also going through famine. And so what I'm trying to get across to you is that they were under great external pressure, suffering, difficulty, hardship. And that helps Paul give application to the principles of God's word. That's why Paul so strongly promotes celibacy as a good option in their circumstances, even better than the good gift of marriage. It's because of the present distress that he refers to. Now again, notice though that he goes on in verse 28 and also in verse 36 to assure these people that if they do decide to get married, if they reject his advice, so to speak, and they decide to get married, they're not sinning. Now that's interesting. So Paul's not saying... I know your, God's will for you individually. He's talking to the group as a whole, and he's saying for you as a whole, it'll be better for you to remain as you are. If you're single, remain single and serve the Lord in single. Because of the present distress that is, that is pounding down on you. But if you decide in your circumstance that that, that that doesn't apply to you as an individual, it's not a sin to get married. And so that's an interesting qualification he puts on it. Again, he's basing it on the circumstances and not every individual circumstance would be the same. What that says to us is that we need to, ch- to take that factor into consideration in our own lives. What are the external pressures pushing down on, pushing in on us? When the Lord brings distress, when the Lord brings a crisis or hardship into our lives, it's a spiritual gut check. It's the Lord saying... Deal with where you are in your relationship with him. In our flesh, when we hit suffering and distress and difficulties, we have a tendency to go in one of two directions. We either try to go out and actively, and part of it's dependent upon your temperament, I've found, is that you either tend to go out and try to control your circumstances. You try to get a hold of what's going wrong, what difficulty there is, try to control your lives and change your circumstances, or you tend to retreat into a shell and disengage from life and shut down and paul is saying hey a lot of the time what the lord is asking you to do in a time of hardship is to just remain as you are just stand firm in faith keep doing what you're doing stay the course and pray and wait upon the lord before you make a big decision that that often is what the Lord would have you do, is pray and wait upon the Lord instead of going out and trying to change your circumstances or trying to run away from life. In Philippians 4, Paul says that he had learned in whatever situation to be content, to be brought low and to abound, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, he could be content no matter what his circumstances because it wasn't his external pressures that were driving his decisions in life. And so, but that is a factor. What are my circumstances? What is the suffering? What are the hardships that I'm facing? Because it goes into God's calling upon you. The second thing he asks you to consider is what's the level of your worldly concerns? In other words, what are your internal pressures? Once you've looked at the external pressures on your life, what are the internal pressures? What's going on inside of you? Verse 28, those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that, Paul says. In verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And he goes on to say that being married greatly increases the concerns about worldly things. Now, earlier in the service, I talked about the world, the way the scriptures sometimes use the word world is things opposed to God. That's not how he's using it here. Worldly things here are the things that are normal to this fallen world, the normal aspects of life between the first and second coming of Christ. Things like paying bills, going to committee meetings, mowing the lawn, taking your kids to practice, taking a test, these are worldly things, they're temporary, they're not (laughs) bad things in and of themselves, but they are part of being in this life, in this fallen world. They're temporary, they're going to pass away. It's interesting, he's talking about marriage, and marriage in the first century was different than marriage today. Today, you marry somebody and you think, okay, I've taken another person into my life and eventually, hopefully, maybe take some children into my life. But back in the first century, when you got married, you were often taking your wife's extended family and some of your extended family into your life as well. And so the responsibilities, I mean, think about that. If marriage was still like that, what would it be like to take on marriage and realize that you're taking on responsibility for a large group of people sometimes? And Paul uses the Greek word that is translated here anxious six times in three verses he says I don't want you to have these worldly cares and concerns burdening you down in a time of crisis and hardship the word for anxious is actually literally means parts in other words these are things that divide your attention things that fragment your focus in life things that distract you and that's what marriage can be. Marriage is a wonderful gift from God, but in many ways, scripture talks about marriage in a similar way in which it talks about wealth. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's a blessing from God to be wealthy. But when you're wealthy, it brings responsibilities and concerns and worldly affairs into your life that you wouldn't have to worry about if you didn't have all that wealth to be a, a steward of. And marriage is the same way. It's a great blessing, but along with it comes a lot of worldly concerns. And Paul is saying then to these Corinthians that in this present distress with all these external pressures pressing down on them because of maybe famine or persecution that reduces their inner ability to deal with the normal responsibilities of life the duties of life Remember in Acts 27 Paul was being taken as a prisoner from uh, taken as a prisoner to Italy and they put him on a ship And when they got out on the seas, a big storm hit, a terrible storm hit, hit, and it was about to sink the ship. Do you remember how the sailors responded? They started throwing stuff overboard. Eventually started throwing the cargo. The whole purpose for the sailors going on the trip, they started throwing it overboard because all of a sudden, the cargo wasn't the top priority. Staying alive became the top priority, and so the cargo had to go. And honestly, that's what storms in life will do. They make you sometimes throw stuff overboard. Stuff that you can't handle, you can't deal with, because you've got a higher priority. And that's what Paul is saying. You know, the modern metaphor for this, I I love the term because it's so helpful. I think prior generations didn't have this. The idea of bandwidth, I love that term. People talk about bandwidth in a metaphorical sense. You know, from the computer world where you say, There's only so much data that your computer can process and handle in its active memory. Well, in life, it's the same way. There's only so much stuff that we in our limitations as sinful human beings can deal with. And so we talk about, I don't have the bandwidth to handle that right now. I can't take that on because I don't have the ability to process the stream of responsibility and information that that requires of me. And so Paul is basically saying, what's your bandwidth? What ability do you have to handle the responsibilities of life? And he's saying in a crisis, marriage brings a lot of responsibilities and and difficulties and worldly concerns that I would rather spare you from, so that you don't lose your focus on what's really important. And That brings me then, you know, as you think about that, before I get to the final point, you know, where you are in life, often you learn your bandwidth. If as the Lord is working in your life, your bandwidth gets bigger and bigger if He's sanctifying you, doesn't it? Your ability to handle worldly concerns in a godly, Christ like way gets bigger and bigger. But things will happen, Circ- circumstances will change your life. It's not necessarily hardship that causes you to question what bandwidth you're, you have available. My wife and I are just at this stage of life are learning what it is to be empty nesters. We're not completely there. We still have one of our children living in the basement. But, but he's living much on his own now. And so we're starting to taste of the freedom of being empty nesters. And, you know, people talked about this. We never knew what it was like until to get to the point where, you know, you've got more money. You've got more time. You've got less responsibility. You've got more freedom. These are tremendous blessings, but what's interesting to me is that I'm having to fight the temptation to be selfish with those freedoms, to use the extra money, to use the extra freedom, to have the things that I've sacrificed for all these years as I was raising children. And what it's doing is, it's God saying to me, "How big's your bandwidth? How you know? What do you? How are you going to deal with it?" And uh, the thing is, when Paul says you should. Consider very seriously that being single would enable you to better serve the Lord. Well, that's not necessarily true in a time of peace and comfort and prosperity. Because single people can be some of the most selfish people you know because they haven't had children to learn how not to be selfish. Because honestly, that's what children's best blessing to you is. They teach you not to be selfish. See, what I'm saying here is that Paul's principle is about what's most important in life. It's not about how many responsibilities. It's not saying that the person with the fewest responsibilities is therefore the most spiritual person. He's just saying that by God's grace, you've been enabled to handle responsibility. Is this new commitment, whether it's marriage or a new job or a change in location, or is this new commitment going to put you over the limit? Which brings us to the third one, is what's the level of the, your control of your desires? What are the passions that are driving you right now? In verse 36, he says, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, let them marry. It's no sin. Now, it's interesting he prefaces that in verse 35 by saying this advice isn't a restraint. It's not a leash. He's not meaning to constrain them. He's not meaning to bind their conscience. They have the freedom to marry. They can marry and not be sinning against the Lord. But he wants them to seriously consider where their heart is, is this the right thing for them? And one of the things, interestingly, he says, is if you don't have the gift of celibacy, we already talked about this a couple weeks ago, if you don't have the gift of celibacy, and he calls it back in verse 7, he calls it a gift, if you don't have that gift, then the Lord, you know, you're wired. Paul's acknowledging here that we're wired to pursue marriage and that he's advocating a commitment here of these Corinthian Christians that runs counter to their natural God-given desires. But he's saying that for some of you, if you can consider, if God's given you the gift of celibacy, take advantage of that so you can serve the Lord effectively in your time of hardship. But some of you don't have that gift. And God is leading you this way. Your passions are to be with this person. For you, that can be the right thing for your calling, for your obedience to the Lord. All this comes down to what's the one thing, doesn't it? Your external pressures that are pressing down upon you, the hardships you're facing, the internal pressures and worries and concerns and worldly responsibilities, that's another factor. Your passions that are driving you forward, those are things to consider. But it all comes down to how you make the decision for your life based on what that one thing is. Well, in order to find out what that one thing is, you've got to go to verse 29. Right there in the middle of the passage, Paul points us to the issue of the one thing. Let me read it to you again. He says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now let me break down what he's saying there a little bit. First of all, he talks about the appointed time. When he talks about the appointed time, the word there in the original language doesn't mean chronological time. It means era. It means a time of great significance. A period where something is happening that's changing your lives or changing culture or it's having a significant impact. It's an era. It's an epic. It's it's what, you know, when we talk about the 60s in American culture, we're not talking about a decade, a chronological decade between 1960 and 1970. What we're talking about is an era a time when there was cultural revolution, when there was a great change in the way that people thought. Well, Paul is saying to Christians, you don't think in chronological time. You think in eras. You think in, of, of epics. You think of periods of time where God did something that radically changed the world and particularly that radically changed you. An era is creation. An era is the fall. An era is is the flood an era is the call of Abraham or the exodus from Egypt the promised land the conquering of the promised land under Joshua the kingship of David the exile in Babylon the incarnation the birth of Jesus Christ the death of Christ on the cross the resurrection of Christ on the third day the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God the Father in heaven The day of Pentecost, where the Spirit of God is poured out upon the church. Those are eras. And you know how many eras, significant times in the plan of redemption are left for mankind? One. All the other eras have come and gone. There's only one more epic event that has to happen, and that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's the perspective of Scripture. That's why Paul says the time is short. short. God's plan is almost complete. Paul didn't know when Jesus Christ was coming in, even though he was an apostle. It wasn't revealed to him the day and time of his return. But Paul lived as though Christ could come any day because he thinks in eras, not in chronological time. And we are to live with that same kind of alertness. John Calvin commenting on this passage says, we should live as though we might have to leave this world at any moment. That's what a Christian perspective does. It recognizes that our view of history and our view of the future, which is given to us by the word of God, creates a mindset, creates a worldview that changes the way we look at the world and changes the way we look at time and changes the way that we look at our calling. And things that seem so important to the world are trivial and temporary and turning to dust and blowing away. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You see, that's what Paul's getting at when he starts listing there in verses 29 to 31. He starts listing normal, earthly, worldly activities. Marriage, mourning, rejoicing buying selling investing engaging in these kinds of worldly activities and he says we're to do them as not as though not doing them and that sounds like nonsense what's he mean what do them as though you're not doing them is what he's saying he's basically saying we live in this fallen world we have all these responsibilities of marriage and parenting and our jobs and school and everything else we have all this but we don't live for them they're not the one thing They're part of this temporary world that's like the beautiful grass and flowers of the field. It's here now and it's gone tomorrow. We live for eternity. For what is eternal? And what's that one thing? Look at verse 35. Here's where he gets to his point. It's easy to skip over that verse quickly, but that's his point. He says, everything, all this advice that he's given, all the help to apply the principles of God's word, he says, I say this for your own benefit, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. There it is, the one thing. Your devotion to the Lord. That's the determining factor for every decision you make in life. What are you going to do in regard to your marriage or lack of marriage? What are you going to do in your career? What are you going to do in your family? What are you going to do with your possessions? How do you apply God's word? What all comes back to that one thing, your devotion to the Lord. Speaking of bandwidth, I think I, as a pastor, probably hear that excuse more than anybody. I don't have the bandwidth. The old way of saying is, I don't have enough room on my plate for that. Because it always comes up with church, you know, when we're out asking people, you want to serve on this ministry team? Can you serve in the nursery? Can you serve in Stepping Stones? Can, Can you consider being an officer of the church? Most of the time what you hear is, I can't handle that right now. I'm too busy. I've got too much on my plate. I don't have enough bandwidth to handle that. And that may legitimately be true. But I think as we try to apply this passage to our lives and our circumstances, the question is, you're right. You probably need to simplify your life. Speaking to 98% of the people in this room, I probably can say that to that many of you. You need to simplify your life a little bit. You need to... Dump some cargo overboard in your life. But just be careful that you're not dumping overboard the very things that enable you to make devotion to the Lord the one thing in your life. If you're too busy to go to church, then you're dumping the one thing overboard that will bring you to Christ, that will draw you to Christ. If you're too busy to spend time studying the Word and have devotional time in the Word every day, you're dumping something overboard that will draw you to Christ and will enhance your devotion to the Lord. If you're too busy to serve according to your gifts in the church, then you're dumping precious cargo overboard that is all about the one thing in your life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Paul's point here to you in your life is that you should go join a monastery somewhere. And really be devoted to the Lord 24-7. That's not what devotion to the Lord 24-7 looks like in your callings in this life. That's not what you're called to. For most of you, I'm not asking you to go be a missionary in some foreign country and really prove your devotion to the Lord that way. What I'm saying is, whatever the Lord has put on your plate, whatever the Lord has called you to, just don't let that become the one thing. Maybe it's not even your job. Maybe it's a person is keeping the Lord from being the one thing in your life. Maybe it's some form of entertainment. Maybe it's movies. Maybe it's video games. Maybe it's, it's some hobby you have that's pushing the more important things out of your life. There's one thing that's eternal in your life, and that's your relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. That's the eternal thing. That's the one thing. Let's pray for the Lord to give us wisdom to get rid of things that pull us away from Him. Let's pray. Father, it's been difficult to interpret and apply these passages in 1 Corinthians 7 because they are so specifically written to people in different circumstances, but really not that different. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would increase our bandwidth, that you would increase our ability, our spiritual maturity, our emotional maturity our sense of discipline and responsibility so that we can do more for you, for the kingdom, for others. But Lord, also help us to understand where we are and what we can handle, what we should take on, what we should leave aside. Lord, I pray that you would, if nothing else, as we considered this text together this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to begin to see all aspects of our lives as related to our devotion to the Lord, the one thing that means everything to us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.